The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, it's interview time again, as author and business school dean Marianne Lewis joins us for a fascinating talk about her new book, Both and Thinking, that challenges us to look beyond our common either-or style of decision-making and take a page from Taoism and embrace the power of yin-yang, where opposites are not enemies, simply different energies in a dynamic balance that can free up creativity and make more lasting solutions. There's a bunch of great ideas in here. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast, begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 227. Oddly enough, recorded on the uh, anniversary, 10th anniversary of our second episode. Check that out. That was a long time ago. Yes, indeed. So here we are. Grayer and wiser. Grayer for sure. Yes, wiser, man. We're trying. Yes. We'll get wiser today with our fantastic interview, Marianne Lewis. Yes, I love this conversation. I think we we cover a lot of grounds about some fantastic topics in a way that I think is uh, fun and engaging. So I, I have fond memories of this conversation. Since we are recording this a couple of weeks after we did the original interview, I'm actually curious to re-listen now to... See, because my feeling as it was happening was that it was a great conversation. It was, and you'll hear it tomorrow. And the rest of you heal in a few days. Yes, indeed. Oh, wait, you're going to hear it right now. Yes, it's happening. See, there's a time collapse right there. I got time all confused. collapsing left and right. Into the future. Let's say a few thank you to the people who keep us in business. Excellent. Starting with Shore Design, uh, with the greatest, funkiest t-shirts on the planet. Shore Design t-shirts. They are awesome. They have been supporting us from the very, very, very early days. So if you are looking for t-shirts or pants or other groovy things that they have, please check out their website at Shore Design t-shirts. Links for everything as usual are in the episode notes. Supporting us more recently, but with great gusto for us, at least, grasslandbeef.com. The quality of... All the products they carry, meat, fish, you name it, is incredible. I love eating their stuff. This is not something I'm just telling you guys. This is something that's on my plate on a fairly regular basis. It just tastes so good. So check them out. Uh, Once or twice a month, they actually have uh, store-wide discounts where there's a 15% discount across the board. So if you're a little tight on money, the prices may look more affordable once you take the 15 discounts into consideration 
grasslandbeef.com. We're going to have somebody else that Ricky's going to get to check out soon, Magic Mind, but I'm going to leave that for the mid-roll as we mentioned them. Of course, a quick thank you to the nice people keeping the drunk in the drunken Taoist with Home Cellars and materawines.com. And of course, more directly, the people parting with their hard-earned money to donate to us. So since we haven't done this in a while, there's more than usual. Let's go screw up some people's name and their pronunciation. Sweet. Let the pottering begin. We want to say thank you to Stephen Rados, Donald Chip Witten, Lane Raper, Brian Matters, I think. Um, Aaron Weisner, Austin Stilwell, Clayton Payne, Jesse Rantakangas, Luis Pesquera, Yanni Nima, Frederick Kahn, Jonathan Waterloo, Stephen McKee, Daniel Fishen, uh, Keegan Walsh, Ryan Marklin, Stephen Notariani, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunis, Aistis Juska, John Vergara, Nicola Toni, Joseph Lord. Wow. How cool was that? Fantastic. Yes. Thank well, you so much, everybody. Yeah. You want to join this brave band of heroes? Uh, you can PayPal at paypal.me forward slash dbolelli, or uh, you can just use my email, uh, bodhi1974 at yahoo.com. That's also one way you can send us some of your hard earned money if you want to support. Speaking of support, uh, we should throw out your PayPal because uh, Mr. Evers has got a big wedding coming up. Not his own, but his lovely daughter. So if you feel like throwing a couple of bucks into a pot to make her honeymoon sweeter. Hell yeah. It's been tough, man. It's expensive out there and I would never <laughs> reach the begging. I don't think it's quite that, but we've been here for 10 years together. And if you want to just help with a small part... It'd be an incredible thing. It's going to be a great celebration regardless. But What's your PayPal? My PayPal is the same as my main email address, therichimon at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N at gmail.com. Any help would really be appreciated, it's for certain. Nuptials are coming up. It's less than a month away. Now it's serious. And I know everybody's had a wreck from the pandemic and everything. And we just weren't as flush as we thought we would be. We're going to make it through. But, man... Five, ten bucks from somebody would be appreciated. You'd have no idea how. Yeah, I, I have no other way than just to say that's the that's the situation, and it would definitely help out a little bit. Beautiful. You know the drill. And uh, anything else that we need to throw out there before we start on the episode? Keep it almost at 200,000. So almost that's amazing there. by itself. That definitely is. Yeah. So this is going to be a fun conversation for sure. Straight from the halls of an academic, so. Yes, indeed. Pretty fancy. Here Let's we go. Let's roll. Okay, here we go with today's chat. We have a rather distinguished guest, Marianne Lewis, here with us, author of Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Harvard Business Review Press, sound impressive already. The <laughs> one thing, that, well, let's start with 
welcoming you to the show. It's great having you here, Marianne. Thank oh, you. Daniela, it's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Beautiful. Already from the title, you hook me in because uh, both hand thinking, it's like that's half of what I talk about in life. So I'm just like, oh, that's exactly my wheelhouse. I love this. And But it intrigued me too that you do it less from a happy, stoned, hippie kind of point of view, and more from a very serious business viewpoint, you know, your academic career is uh, definitely check all the boxes for the intense, serious stuff. So I was interested. I was very interested in seeing how you would apply things that are sometimes discussed in sort of flowery philosophical ways, in very pragmatic, down to the point kind of ways. Which is, I just finished your book about three minutes before we got on uh, on the on Zoom, so it's all fresh in my brain. Um, I guess let's start with the basics. The whole both and thinking is a cornerstone of Taoism, but of course it's not just Taoism, it's a cornerstone of anybody ever who look at life and understand that we are stuck between different polarities. And sometimes the solution is not black and white, the solution is combining what appear to be contradictory stimuli. As much as I love this stuff, it's not exactly what most people are brought up in thought-wise, uh, worldview-wise. How did you end up in this? You know, Daniela, it's interesting. Both Wendy Smith, my co-author, and I ended up in this area really from what felt initially like pretty standard dissertations out of a business school and PhDs. Hmm. So I was studying automation and was in manufacturing firms and exploring how to implement manufa manufacturing automation. And all I found was tensions. I found, mm -hmm. you know, really these kind of intense tug of wars between is this new technology going to de-skill or upgrade our skills? Is it about control or is it about flexibility? And so this took me down this really down this path saying there's so much more here because everybody was talking about variety of tensions in the technology, in management, in leadership. And it's not going to surprise you at all where I ended up, right? Mm -hmm. I ended up studying Taoism. Studying, I mean, you know, brilliant works like the Tao of Physics and that these tensions were in philosophy and psychology. Yep. And so I wrote a, a, an article that at the time was really different in, in the field of management that won the paper of the year in the top journal. This was in the year 2000. And I was shocked, actually. I, it was like I hit a nerve. Mm -hmm. And then Wendy is at the same time getting her PhD or a little bit later in Harvard, and she's studying IBM. Mm -hmm. And the leaders at IBM are saying, well, wait a minute, how do we, you know, really jump on to the, the new, you know, frame breaking innovation, and we've got to keep our current products going. And so she was feeling the same kind of tensions. So we, she came to me and said, there's something, there's so much more here. And in the world of business, we were raised how do you make good trade-offs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And basically what we found, especially thanks to Taoism, is the power of the yin-yang. We've had so many conversations, particularly with wonderful scholars in China and Singapore and other places that helped us get our arms around, we're not thinking about these right. Mm -hmm. right? We're putting them on a scale and saying, how do you weigh the pros and cons and make a decision? And the kinds of tensions we're talking about don't go away. They are they're part of the human existence. Mm -hmm. 
And that, aha, Danielle, I mean, I appreciate your point. In some fields is like obvious, but in especially in business, and maybe a lot of us on in the in the farther west mm-hmm. have been trained in this very formal logic, and our default is either or, and we're missing so much opportunity for creativity, more lasting, generative solutions. I think it makes perfect sense so that it happens that way. Because if you think about how we have uh, conceived of duality in the west. So much of Western thinking has been uh, God versus the devil, absolute good versus absolute evil, heaven and hell. You know, there is a recognizing that dualism exists, which, of course, anyone who's alive can recognize easily, but is always framed in terms of opposition, of conflict, of uh, one side is the good side you want to support and one is the evil side that you need to squash. Whereas the whole genius of the yin-yang concept is recognizing that duality often is not like that. That it is, uh, it's like it's opposites that are not enemies per se. They are just different energies. You know, hot and cold is not that I'm team cold or team hot. It's like right. they, yeah. there's a place where it feels really good and you can go over a little more to the hot side and then you can go a little more to the cold. But, you know, the whole concept being this is not a fight to the death between two opposites. This is more like a dance. It's more like a dynamic balance taking place here. And, uh, and I think it's such a key that's why to me the yin yang symbol is such genius because it captures in like one simple little symbol what essentially is at the roots of most of life if you want to understand life that's one of the things you want to understand first and so that's why i love seeing the application of these in all kinds of fields like and and i like like there's one thing that you guys do in the book that um you break down some of the problems that come up anytime we don't adopt the either or part um, the more paradoxical approach and uh and instead we go for these or that rather than these and that uh you refer to one of these as like the wrecking ball effect do you want to bring up to speed everyone else on that yeah yeah i i will so so one of the ways that we've been studying the either or kind of the paradox mindset versus the traditionalist is actually looking at the the dangers of either or mm-hmm. so oftentimes we just say either or thinking is limiting right i mean right you've got two options you're missing all the complexity and the beauties between and then we push on it and say but it's also potentially destructive mm-hmm and so I, I would kind of tease it out. We find three vicious cycles that we've seen in patterns and we've seen them in organizations and leaders and lives. We can. So the first one, you kind of jump to the middle one, but I would share the first one because I think it tees it up well. Sure. Uh, we call um, intensification, which basically means when we have these either ors, let's say short term, long term, or like one mm-hmm. of my personal favorites is innovation versus efficiency. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's a very businessy piece. And and I'm very innovation oriented. And if you don't have the rigor of efficiency, oh, but I, I will lean toward my preferred. I will I will lean towards looking for the next, you know, next and new leaning mm-hmm. for what's interesting and creative. And you, you we call it the rabbit hole, because the more you lean toward a preferred side, the more you see it. 
It's like you've got blinders on. The more your emotions are tapped into it, meaning I can feel anxiety from the other side because it's not my comfort. Mm -hmm. The more my habits start to get reinforced and almost institutionalized, especially if I'm a leader. And so we keep going down this rabbit hole until we hit a part where we realize, oh, we have completely lost the rigor or whatever are the benefits to the alternative. And then we typically kind of swing the pendulum and we go, oh my goodness. It's like you wake up you realize you've gone too far. You've missed the need for the opposing elements. But unfortunately, the, the next vicious cycle we often see, we call it the wrecking ball. It's like you swing that pendulum so hard because you wake up in a place that you never meant to get to. And by swinging it that hard, you, you can destroy mm-hmm. all of the good that you've done in, my, in the, this example with my innovation mindset. I can go so hardcore to being rigorous and disciplined and efficient that the next thing you know, you could be down the same, the same rabbit hole, just with a different theme and think, Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Now I've missed change all around me. So I, I do think that's, that's a key piece. And then I would just add that the third vicious cycle we see is polarization mm-hmm. and we call it, you know, trench warfare. And to us, what that means, and we see it in organizations, we certainly see it in politics these days is different people stuck in their, opposing rabbit holes, just digging their trenches deeper, not listening, not learning, missing so much opportunity for collaboration and mm-hmm. and more impactful problem solving because they're stuck. There are a couple of examples that come to mind of exactly what you're describing that I've seen in uh, fields that I dabble in. Like, for example, I've been teaching in uh, American Indian studies for over 20 years. And uh, one thing that I notice is that you know, pre-1960 scholarship was often pretty racist. You know, you read many of the books and they were like, whoa, this is very ethnocentric kind of thinking. And, and in not so many words, a pretty racist approach. Post-1960s, because it has been so one-sided and messed up, the pendulum swings heavy the other way. And so you have this portrayal of, uh, you know, indigenous peoples can do no wrong. They are perfect environmentalists. They, you know, hug the furry creatures of the forest and talk to trees and everything is wonderful. And, And then, of course, you realize, no, that's not that way either. And rather than realizing, okay, one version was a bad stereotype, the other one is a sweeter, but ultimately still a misguided stereotype. So maybe we can look at reality. I see the wrecking ball effect there, where it's like you go from racism to over-idealized romanticism, back to racism in another way, because I see a lot of books published in the last few years that... They are not explicitly stating that they are ultra-ethnocentric, but when you look at their conclusions, you're like, whoa, this could have been written in 1920 and you just put it in a slightly more acceptable language. But you haven't made treasure of the fact that reality is more complex. You have simply swung the pendulum back, which was what originally caused the very thing you don't like. You know, I see the same discussions when it comes to things like uh, masculinity, You know, the critique of traditional masculinity being toxic and abusive. So the pendulum swings the other way and is like anything associated with traditional masculinity is terrible and evil, including things that are not like, you know, strength, assertive, you know, the the kind of characteristic typically ascribed. And so you end up with a parody of like what it means not to be that thing. And again, rather than realizing, okay, you know, you can take the best of the traditional masculine approach and mix it with a somewhat more enlightened consciousness, 
no, let's go back to the original masculinity, which caused the backlash, which inevitably will cause the backlash back. And it's like, why are we stuck in this ping pong game between horrible ideas, you know? Daniela, if I may, because those two examples are just fantastic. Not not in a positive way, but they are really good examples because they also illustrate how the three vicious cycles are connected. Because polarization, we Mm -hmm. believe, is very much fueled by that wrecking ball because the opposite side looks at that backlash and says, see, that is not what we want. Because they've missed the the nuances. So the trenches get deepened by that extremism at the ends. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that makes it incredibly hard to say, well, how do we build a more complicated, nuanced, and complete visual an understanding of exactly what you're talking about, whether it's indigenous people, ma- masculinity, femininity, you, you pick the topic. Right. Anything, really, <laughs> because it's like you find it in any field of life, you find these dynamics. But what happens when the ball swings too far? I mean, um, business-wise, we've been trapped in this Milton Freeman free market shit for so long now, has gone so far, that... Those that are making billions and happy to do it for all time, they may just hold that wrecking ball on their side and never let it back. That's a swing that could really happen because this whole change of 40 years from stakeholders to shareholders only has so destroyed all the middle class that it's terrifying to think that these folks, as great as these notions are, they're never going to let it swing back. Well, I I think that's where you get the role of power playing right? In yeah. these cycles. And, and I, I, I think you're, you're making a good point. I mean, I'm the dean of a business school and we're always going to have, you know, Friedman enthusiasts who talk about, right. And they have interesting, you know, insights into why the shareholder approach works. And then thank goodness we have some remarkable, in fact, it's our final chapter is Paul Pullman and his leadership at Unilever and a different kind of approach, the conscious capitalism, right? Different ways to build, bring in the stakeholders. I'm not saying that power is equal yet by any stretch, but I do think more equal power enables us to actually move beyond the trenches. But Richard, you're absolutely right. The power dynamics are, are need to be recognized in these. Yeah, and it seems like so many of these issues become um, like what you describe as the entrenching process of people who become radicalizing one side. And they, one of the things that seem to happen that makes it so much harder to go down the middle, not only the one that Rich brings up when it's about benefits. So you have no interest in going back to a middle place if you don't, if you are reaping benefits from keeping it to one side. But also, even when it's not economic benefits, it's uh, you have a lot that is about identity. You know, people build their identity, their view of who they are in life based on, I support Team White, I support Team Black, I'm on this side. And so then finding a middle ground is almost like a betrayal. It's not simply, uh, oh, I'm, I'm exploring ideas and trying to uh, find what works. Is no, I'm betraying the sacred things that make us who we are. And of course, when identity comes in, it's so much harder to try to have a nuanced discussion because if those are your sacred tenants, you don't compromise with sacred tenants and it becomes really, really hard to... Uh, to let go or even convince somebody to have a slightly more open approach. I think when you tap into identity, you've tapped into something. It's much stronger than just ideology mm-hmm. because now it's so embedded. 
Right. Wendy and I have both become increasingly focused on the polarization challenges because we think that's the wicked problems mm-hmm. are all being stymied by that sort of polarization, whether it's, you know, Ezra Klein and his why we're polarized and really he gets a lot into the identity piece. The other person I, I and they, they come at it from different views is Arthur Brooks, love your enemy. And he's really talking about culture of contempt and resentment. But they're both they both have really interesting, I think, views on how are we going to get past what's so stuck now? Mm-hmm. Because it is our ideology and yeah. our culture as well as our identity. And it's you're either with us or against us. And that terrifying lack of common ground now. And, and as soon as you've made that claim, we've got a problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And I don't know how you get back to it. Yeah, because when you... But you'd... you've got to figure it out. So you explain it to me. <laughs> Implement it later this afternoon. It's one of the beauties of being in a university. I mean, I'm reading a really interesting book now called uh, A Fall of the Ivory Tower. And it's about kind of the pendulum swing wrecking ball in, in higher ed. And I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of criticisms against right now. Uh, against higher ed being kind of um, radicalizing students. And the book makes a point that it's that's that pendulum has swung many times. This is not the first time it's happened. And at the same time, we have a responsibility to treat teach critical thinking to truly be sure we're not teaching people what to think, but we are Mm -hmm. teaching, giving them tools to question and listen and uh, engage, not just debate. And that's what I think brilliant, by the way, about what you're doing with the book is the fact that you're not drawing conclusions for people. You're not, you're exactly what you just said. You're not telling them what to think. You are inviting people to explore a process that inevitably, if they follow, is going to lead to nuance, is going to lead to a more uh, sophisticated kind of thinking, is going to lead to a less conflictual kind of thinking because the whole business of paradox is how to resolve conflict in a way that uh, works for everybody, or at least as close as you can in in the real world. And I think that's a key. That's why I love so much the theme in the abstract before one even goes into the specific, the idea of the... At one point, you use the yes and uh, image in there, where you say anything somebody tells you, usually there's something that should be acknowledged in what they are saying. There's a need, there's something. And then you can you can acknowledge that initial point and then invite them to take another step and look at it from other angles and add elements to it all and so on. I think that's a fantastic approach to really that should be, in my mind, when people think say critical thinking, I think that would be step one. Uh, Before anything else you tackle, that would be step one right there is like, how do I think of it rather than being stuck in one camp or another? How do I think of it more holistically? And I love, uh, I think like what you do in that regard, I guess I'm interested because we all agree on the theory, right? It's like you wrote a book about it. We are clearly in agreement. So we are, I think like, what uh, we can touch on maybe are some of the examples because like in relation to what you're saying like one thing that we brought up at some point in the past in discussion especially when looking at modern politics is the fact that if anything the dualistic approach has created more extremes because i give you an example if somebody on the left or on the right doesn't even matter they take a fairly extreme position that's not mainstream of their side it's not mainstream left it's not mainstream right Everybody from the other side start yelling at them, saying, look at those terrible people on the left or look at those terrible people on the right. And they paint the extreme as the norm. Mm-hmm. Now, people 
if this is a criticism coming from the left to the right or vice versa, but let's use left to right in this case, somebody on the right feels like, okay, these guys may be a little batshit crazy and they don't represent who we are, but our enemies are criticizing them. Our enemies are saying that these guys are who we are. So I guess we should defend them. And slowly but surely that extreme position start becoming more mainstream. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that by going hard against the more extreme side, you actually help create it and bring it into existence as a more mainstream thing. And of course, now you end up with warring camps that are not going to compromise on anything. You, at the very beginning of the book, you make the point about how where politics is today about the fact that we live in times of extreme divide, very hard to reconcile, and the fast pace of change that goes with globalization is making it even harder. What are, I don't mean to ask you, you know, how do you solve all of the world problems right now in the next 30 seconds, but kind of, you know, what do you think are some of the key things in these topics that nobody wants to give an inch on? How do you go about it? I think there's kind of the top down and the bottom up approach. And I'm mm-hmm. like anything, I think it's both. Yep. Um, but <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. I mean, so when you yes. have, you know, right after the Roe v. Wade, you know, as an example, we, we started doing some writing. And again, not saying what it should be, sure. but saying right. we have to start having conversations at the dinner table, at the water cooler, at the board. I mean, these these topics now have become so hypersensitized. You can't even have a conversation, mm-hmm. right? Versus saying, in the case of, of, of abortion, I mean, I'm picking, this is a really sure. challenging topic. We could pick, it, you name it, yeah. we could pick a challenging topic, right? But it's how do you start a conversation by saying, you know, I'd love to hear a bit about your experience and help me understand where you're coming from, which is a different way of saying, I don't want you to tell me your stance. Mm-hmm. I want to understand. Mm -hmm. Right. So as Wendy and I, and we've done this with a lot of different topics ourselves, you know, we'll say, we'll talk to someone and they'll say, well, um, you know, I had an abortion when I was in in my late teens. It really challenged me for years to get over, you know, and you'll hear this kind of, okay, this, and she says, so I've leaned towards, you know, Mm pro-life. I I really harmed. I mean, that's not exactly what you would have expected right? For, for it to come from, or you can hear it from, it's, it's approaching it though, with this, this curiosity mm-hmm. to understand your experience. I don't want you to debate with me. I want to, I want to understand where you're coming from. I'm not going, I may never change my mind, but I would sure like to understand mm-hmm. how this is working in yours. Because I, to your point, I, I mean, you just said something that, that kind of always gets to my to my head. Now that's obviously coming from the bottom up, but mm-hmm. there's this slippery slope argument that is so damning in these conversations because the slippery slope is, you know, you see something and you go, well, uh, you know, that is such a, a nice, mo- I can see it. It would make a difference. I don't know whether it's guns or abortion, right? Mm-hmm. Just, it moves us a bit over, but it, it doesn't take much for the other side to say, but what if, what if, what if, and the next thing you know it, you're back at an extreme saying, well, obviously I don't want that because it, right. Right. Why do we have to go all the way over there? Mm-hmm. I, I think the more challenging is the top down, which gets back to Rich's point about power. And I don't have a good solution for this. I'd be, I'd love to hear where, where your thinking is, both of you, because I'm afraid you don't get the podium. You don't get the platform unless you're at the extreme because 
It used to be mm-hmm. that, you know, you'd be on the platform speaking to like the, the, the main group and you'd be rather moderate. And then when you were just talking to your base, you'd be more extreme. Yeah. And we flipped it or not even flipped it. It's just all become that extreme to get the nominee to mm-hmm. get right on the ballot. It takes that hyperbole in a way that isn't healthy. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to say, and is it enough to have just the bottom up plus to the point of, I don't want you on mm-hmm. my, at the podium yeah, because you're, you're taking us in a place that isn't healthy for anyone. I don't know. Well, and I think in that sense, there's that's where the extreme has an advantage, and not even just as a power factor, but just because of the human mind, how it works, because the extreme is simplistic. And uh, while oversimplifying is obviously wrong, it appeals to the part of us where we crave si- the universe is complex enough, life is difficult enough, we crave simplicity. So somebody who gives us a simple slogan, a flag to follow, something that say we are the good guys, the reason why everything doesn't work is because of those bad guys over there, is appealing. That's why we have had three zillion cult leaders throughout history, dictators. There's, I mean, today in the 21st century, there's a crave for quasi-dictatorial figure that you'd think after all the, from the Enlightenment to democracy to this and that, that should be the thing of the past. And you realize not at all because that is what the human mind craves. Uh, crave simplicity, crave mm-hmm. a simple Order. narrative that will make sense on a superficial level, give you a sense. How do you build identity on paradox, right? It's not an easy thing to do. How do you build identity on nuance? That's not an easy thing to do. And yet people want identity because that's what inform uh, their vision of the world, who they are. And it's so much easier if there's a simple label that they can attach to themselves and say, I am this and I believe in one through ten versus having an approach that's more on like mm-hmm. thinking on your feet. You are, uh, you are in this constant dynamic balance. And, and I think that is the problem. It's almost a marketing problem. It's like how do because sometimes people get tired of hearing, uh, like they realize sometime, not often, but sometimes people realize that if you push too hard one way, it doesn't solve the problem. Push too hard the other doesn't solve the problem. That's why, I mean, I think about a guy I deeply love, Dan Carlin, has a podcast called Hardcore History, and he's an incredibly nuanced thinker, and he has millions of people listening to him. So clearly, there are people who crave that, but it's a harder sell, almost marketing-wise, because if somebody asks you almost like dinner conversation, you know, you have 10 seconds, what is this guy about? And he's like, uh, well, it's not that simple. You know, you have to go deeper. And so I don't know how to, before we even address the power factor, I don't know in terms of, uh, maybe, you know, I'm insisting on using the word marketing. Maybe that's not exactly the right word, but it's almost like a brand in terms of image, in terms of how do we, tackle a more complex, sophisticated, paradoxical way of thinking when it's so much harder to sell in simplistic terms? It actually might go back to, is there is there an answer in the problem, mm-hmm. like identity? Mm-hmm. Because there are good examples of paradoxical identities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you just a couple. To I'll give you one that's very simplistic. But but in some of the research that we were doing with product design firms like IDEO and others, they had 
those firms had truly fostered this identity in their designers. They are practical artists. Mm-hmm. And they would use this term all the time. And the reason they wanted that is if they were pure artists, they'd never get the job done. Of course. They would never <laughs> do the basic work, right? And at the same time, if they were just practical, they would not win the awards. They would not, right? right? But, but it became part of what they did culturally in these firms of that's the beauty. Yeah. You're the practical artist. It's phenomenal, right? Or I go back to the, you know, Paul Pullman would talk all the time about his biggest challenge with Unilever was the communication and the brand because people would say, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Are you about profit or social responsibility? And he would say, yes, yes, (laughs) right? But he used the sustainable living plan as this identity that I am the paradoxical leader. We are the paradoxical organization. We are going to double our profits by being socially responsible. And -hmm. it became enough of a mantra that people, people understood Mm -hmm. he's not waffling, right? He's not unsure. There's a method to this madness and it is about both. And through that, we are going to be able to be socially responsible in a way that we can fund and can last and it will make a difference. And, you know, I, I know, I mean, you watched, you know, there's their stock dip for a while Mm -hmm. and then people got it and went, Oh, I think this is the kind of firm I want to support mm-hmm. where you see it in kind of the hybrid organizations who are figuring out, you know, B Corp kind of there's some interesting new models that might be shortcuts to what you're talking about. Now, I'm mm-hmm. talking about business, obvious. Sure. OK, ladies and gentlemen, one quick thing I want to throw out there. We have a partnership with magicmind.co. These guys make a product that I've personally tried, work like a charm. I'm inviting you to give it a thought if this is something that could help you. The problem that Magic Mind tackles is really simple to explain. The feeling when there are 24 hours in a day, there are several more to go before it's time to call it a day, and you feel foggy and tired and sluggish, and that's when normally you start down in about two gallons pot of coffee. That's one way to go about it. There are, I think, better ways, and these may be at least worth an experiment for you to see if this is uh, is as good as advertised, so you don't have to take my word for it. I've tried it for quite a few days in a row before recording this, and you, I mean, I felt it on day one. They say wait until day three, day four, until that's when the effects really start kicking in. I felt it on day one, like within minutes of taking it, you definitely get this moment of alertness where things seem clearer, sharper, words come faster, that kind of feeling. I had, uh, out of curiosity, because I was like, okay, that's working for me, but who knows? I had my mom try because she was recently complaining of saying, hey, man, I don't like this. I'm getting older and I'm noticing in, uh, I'm forgetting things, uh, I'm losing words here and there. And she was a fan. She's actually... the. The main reason why we have this established partnership with Magic Mind right now is because she's like, give me my next dose. Where is it? (laughs) So clearly worked. So that's the good news. So what is in this magical, mystical compound? We got a lot of stuff and I'm uh, not going to read you the whole thing, but anything from matcha to ashwagandha or however you pronounce it or lion's mane mushrooms cordyceps mushrooms is this natural mental boosting ingredients that should do the trick for you 
my suggestion is if this fits your needs try it out you get to try we have a discount code that's actually pretty substantial in the first 10 days from when we release this episode you get a 40% discount if you apply to a subscription you can also just try it as a one-time thing for a 20% discount and also after 10 days from the first release is going to be 20% discount on subscriptions so you get anywhere depending on where you listen to it and the format between 20 and 40% discounts the website is uh, www.magicmind.co so not com just co forward slash taoist with the t magicmind.co forward slash taoist will automatically get your discount going and uh, check it out and if you guys do i would love to hear what you think can we find the political leader who's willing to put his her there you know stake in the ground that we're going to only thrive in this world by managing the paradoxes around us and then actually talk to that can they make it part of their identity i right. would love to see that i mean i've seen it in small and bigger ways on other sides but not politically i don't know if that the leader could survive the vetting especially with the vilification you'd get from the other side the tiniest little morsel you know that perfect person doesn't exist and if they have the itty bitty right. little pebble that they can grab a hold of it oh my god when he was 17 or she it's so hard to crack and i'm still terrified about the notion that uh critical thinking is being vilified in the schools now that uh, is that really happening that I, I guess i can see it that when i was sent off to college the idea was to go open your mind and experience new people and places and and try everything how could that ever be chased away are we uh, apparently things are worse than even i thought well well l let me let me let me clarify maybe what i meant by that i meant that there i think there are some misunderstandings between with what critical thinking means okay, okay. so i'll use i mean a, a challenging discussion is around critical race theory right critical race theory is not critical thinking per se it is a very specific approach to taking a lens and 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 it builds deeper understanding mm -hmm. as you're looking at history in other places but it it isn't right. saying everything means x it's a lens and critical thinking is learning how to use different lenses to complicate our understanding where it gets weaponized is when you swing to that extreme and say that should be all we teach that should be and then you have the other side say wait a minute Right back. That goes to kind of your your indigenous people's example, mm -hmm. Danielle. Right. And then, oh, my gosh. And it swings back because yep. you get a backlash. Right. Versus saying, no, I, I, I think that is a really valuable lens. It's one of many. And if you take it to read, you know, as you're reading historical or whatever you're reading, you could say, maybe I'm not I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to ask some more questions. That's very different to me than than viewing critical race theory as an ideology. Right. And sometimes it is used as such. And then we have a problem because then people say, well, what are they learning in at university? And I'm like, wait. So that's what, what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm afraid the word even critical is being challenged now. And it's like, no, let's make it a process. 
Mm-hmm. If we make it a process, it's engaging, it's insightful. If we make it an ideology, it sounds like dogma too often. And that's not what we do. Yeah, that's a hundred percent the way that's exactly how it goes. And I think in that regard is interesting because what you brought up regarding uh, how to build an image that's paradoxical, that embraces complexity as a positive, not as a wishy-washy thing that people don't go for. I love that and I would love to see it done more and more and more because clearly it requires a little bit. It's so easy to just swing uh, one flag color. It's much harder to be more nuanced. But uh, I think like two huge challenges to that, which doesn't mean it can be done, but these are kind of like the obvious challenges that we have standing in our way. One from the political viewpoint, in US in particular, um, there's a two-party monopoly. There's a very clear, you need to stick through A through Z if you're going to be pushed by our party and you need to stick through A through Z if you're going to be pushed through the other party. Anything that doesn't fit makes you automatically look suspicious in the eyes of the loyalist of the party and you're just not going to get the money or the votes or anything you need to be pushed forward. And it's not even about the voters or convincing the voters, it's about the power player in these and there are two. There are not three, there are not four, there's two, that's it. And so that makes it considerably more... And if anything, there has been one thing that both parties have strongly embraces just squash any possible alternative anything that threatens the two-party monopoly is a bigger enemy than even the other side <laughs> you know it's like because that that would that would break that power structure so that's like on a practical standpoint that's really hard i guess let's start tackling that first like what do you think could be a way out of it because clearly building uh, like I think when I look at American history I think one of the big tragedies of American history was uh, 1912 when uh, Theodore Roosevelt made the biggest showing ever by a third party he actually took second place you know he beat one of the two major parties but because essentially he split the vote on one side still ended up losing and that experiment of the idea of thinking outside of the two main parties sort of died out. I mean, ever after that, third parties have been pulling ridiculously slow na- low numbers because nobody thinks they have a shot. Mm-hmm. In many cases, also because of their own faults, but also sometimes it's just like, well, even if you come up with the best party ever that I love every single thing you say, do I really want to vote for you when I know you have no chance? And, and you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. What do you think? Do you see any strategy actual way to get out of that because that's a pretty tough obstacle that stand in the way of uh, uh, not on other levels on other levels you know business or anything else there are ways around it this is purely when it comes to politics that's a hard one to to deal with and again i'm not expecting you to find the perfect solution because that's a hard hard problem especially because you're right when you get into the the structure yeah right with the two party I think it is it is challenging. I'm wondering who's going to be the smartest party first to figure out that if you actually came toward the middle, you you might be even guaranteed the win. Did you say you're waiting for a smart party? That's that I, I wait. am. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I want to see who's going to figure this out because I think that you know they do. I've seen Adam Grant and some others have done this recently, right? If you actually take polls and it wasn't just him, I think he's pulling from others. If you take polls on where the majority is, they're, they're right smack in the middle. So 
why do the the why does the party believe the loudest angriest ends are where to plant the flag that strikes me that it might not be about the two party system being broken it might be about who's either leading it mm-hmm. and or who they're listening to because if you were actually looking at the data and if you said we are going to be the party that is compassion and about collaboration and about getting things done right I, I don't know. And I'm saying I think it could be either one. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I think it would be really interesting to see, could they make plant that flag in a way that it's waving? Right. And you're getting that nuance and say, we we don't want to play in the mud anymore. This is mm-hmm. it's not serving us well as a nation. It's not serving us well as a world. I mean, maybe I am. You know, I used to call myself Pollyanna. Now I think the term is Ted Lasso. But it's like you need to be there. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think there are plenty of us voters out there who say, yeah, why am I have why do I keep having to vote against the other? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Because that is what oftentimes we're doing now is we're voting because we don't want that. I'd love to vote for something. Say, oh, that sounds so much more. That's just positive. my notion of the perfect political party. I would call it the barn raisers because okay. that's the America that I thought I believed in in the 70s when I was growing up, which we are clearly not. We are the evil empire and we rule everything and we don't give a shit about anybody except money and power. But you're right. That core in the center could fall for something like that. <laughs> I hate that I have but to say that fall for it, but you're absolutely correct because I do think there's enough of us left over that still believe that way compassion taking care of everybody why are why would these be con- in any way controversial it seems impossible but somehow we've been sold if we're not that guy you're not these guys and then nobody gets anything except for the two percent on top this is an easy problem to crack but no one wants to take a moment to stop fighting over nothing and fight for what would really make this the best place in the world Rich, I'd love to hear someone say exactly what you did, just did about being compassionate and caring. And I want them to say at the same time, and we're going to be rigorous and make tough decisions. And right. So it doesn't sound like it's all soft because it's going to have to be tough love. It won't be easy. It won't be easy. And, you know, I'm afraid that back to Daniela, your point of we we seek order and simplicity. Mm -hmm. And somebody has to have the guts to say it. There is no simple answer. Mm hmm. Yeah. And the only way we're going to figure this out is by bringing together lots of smart people who care a great deal and are will- willing to collaborate. I, I'm. It concerns me that these parties aren't realizing that that could be a winning ticket. Right. And I think some of it is uh, inertia. You know, you stick with the things that you have always done because change is hard. Um, change is a gamble, whereas the way things have done, you know exactly what to expect. You lose an election, you win the next one, you you know, nobody likes... Yeah, pendulum swings oh. hard, doesn't it? Exactly. You know that you're going to have 50% of the vote and you're just working on that extra 1% that puts you ahead, not really in terms of thinking what creates the best because that's the problem is like at the end of the day you're right like overwhelmingly people vote against something Uh because um and usually they have very good reasons to vote against whatever it is they are voting against because you see very rarely good results coming out of anywhere you know somebody may have better percentages but you're still talking about really bad percentages and you're talking about 
who gets uh, 5% good done versus 10% good done. It's like, okay, one is twice as much, but it's still 90% fail rate, you know? It's <laughs> it's not a good deal. And I think no. that's, you know, part of the issue, but also some of it, which is, I guess, the second problem that I was alluding to earlier, is of mindset, is the fact that we are so stuck in this dualistic viewpoint that it's very hard for people to even hear what you're saying. Like I was just having a discussion and I always hate myself anytime I post anything online that is remotely controversial because then I have to deal with all the discussion. I'm like, why do I do that to myself? But like, I wasn't saying even anything, you know, one thing that annoys me since I have been teaching in university for 20 plus years is when I hear uh, people who usually haven't seen a university with a telescope in the past, whatever, many decades, start telling me what universities are like. And they're like, mm -hmm. they are all these indoctrination centers of social justice warriors. And I'm like, no, that's not, the, it can happen here and there in some places. No, that's not the norm. That's not the mainstream. And the immediate reaction, even when I explicitly stated what you are criticizing, you know, the super extreme version of political correctness, I don't like it either. I, if I, I saw it, I would call on it and say, yeah, that is crap. But the reality is that I know I do not see it. What you are, I do see it in exceptions, not as the rule. And when you try to paint it as the rule, that's just simply factually incorrect. Immediately, the reaction, rather than being oh, okay, so you do agree with me on some stuff, but you're telling me that my vision of reality is not exactly spot on, is, uh, oh, it's probably because you support the super extreme political correctness. It's like, I just told you I don't. I would, I would tell you if that's what I am, I tell you that's what I am. But it's like, there's almost that inability to comprehend that if you don't fit 100% in my camp, Mm -hmm. then it means you must fit 100% in a camp that I mentally created of who anybody who's not like me is like. And it's like I think it's a good litmus test, Daniela, of, of how strong people's either either or versus both and, you know, a paradoxical mindset. How Because what Wendy and I have seen when, when we're having these conversations is – we can be having a real both end conversation between a debate and, and somebody can literally only hear that we're not wholly on their camp. Mm -hmm. It just is a very strong signal that they're so far from a paradox mindset. We're not going to bring them. They don't want to listen because I can say, wait a minute. I didn't, but I didn't say that. Yeah, I, of course. I was, and then you get into this crazy like loop Yeah, and you can't quite get out of because they don't, they're hearing one side yeah. in the discussion. It's like they are so damn far down their rabbit hole, the blinders are really tight. Yeah, where there's no, you're, they're not engaging with what you're saying. They are engaging with what they think you're saying based on the saying. fact that you don't fit 110% with their ideology. And so those are the cases where I'm like, okay, how do I even start this discussion? Because it's like, it's a comedy of misunderstandings here. That's where it feels challenging to me. That's where it feels. And again, I feel like it's a lot easier one-on-one. -on -one. You know, if you take somebody aside and you're sitting with them, it's so much easier to communicate in a way that brings it back to a place of contact where you can find something in terms of shared humanity that makes them not look at you as the enemy. Mm -hmm. But... 
Then they go home. Well, yeah. And then it's like, there's that for sure. And also it's like, well, that's not exactly an easy or realistic scenario in most discussion. Most discussion, you don't have the luxury of having somebody who's willing to sit with you, who has the time, the energy, who's physically there, who's all of that. Never mind the fact that usually, yeah, you come to a place. I've had that million times, what you just described long drawn out discussion this person who started on a super extreme end is now sounded fairly reasonable i don't agree with everything but i'm like okay we we can have a discussion here and a week later they are back where they started because they went back to watching the news channel they watch or whatever it is and i'm just like oh and, god and we're back to here mind we control are. and lobotomies again yeah it's that, like you know these are the words so that I think is uh, where the fatigue kicks in mm-hmm. sometime, where you I just agree. feel like, <laughs> oh my God, this is uh, like swimming against the currents where, where you feel that you have to drag that weight to come to a place that's not even to convince them or something, but just to have a productive discussion. How do you deal? Because, you know, being somebody who embraces so much the, the paradox flavor consciousness, how do you deal with that, both in your own personal life, in your academic life, in every other thing? How do you deal with the frustration that inevitably comes with uh, when you're dealing with a world that's not set up according to that worldview and that's so hard to get people to even understand what you're doing? I think part, part of the way that I at least work through it is, uh, you know, a fervent belief that there, there is more and better out mm-hmm. there. And one of the reasons that, you know, we talk about it a bit in the book, but Wendy and I both started at a very strategy level. We were kind of Mm -hmm. at the big organizational leadership level. And we ended up working with some phenomenal researchers who are are psychological experimentation, kind of the whole, I mean, they were, they're brilliant. And they said, we need to go down to the the individual Mm -hmm. and we need to start measuring how, what, what is their degree of a paradox mindset? And we've now had, I mean, this is in so many languages, we've studied thousands of people, and it's not going to surprise either of you at all, that what we found now, obviously, we're looking at a business side, you know, they're more creative and higher performers in terms of productivity, according to their supervisors, not them. Mm -hmm. But I think the more human pieces, what we find at the individual level, when they talk about it is their well-being is greater. Hmm. That especially if the tensions are higher, their ability to have a paradox mindset helps them do the dance Mm -hmm. in a way that is more sustainable. They are happier. They are more satisfied. So I kind of, to me, some of that research, and it just keeps building, Mm -hmm. is is a a rock I hold on to to say, I know this is hard and I will keep having these conversations. We're probably going to have to have it again. You know, when you have this really good, and I'm not trying to convince you of a position. I'm trying to convince you to listen. Yeah. Right? No, to be curious. That makes perfect sense. That definitely makes sense. And I think it's such a it's such a healthier way to it's such a healthier place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it ultimately uh, and again it leads to something you brought up and I forgot to mention earlier, the fact that there are two competing vision between one that's a zero-sum game when somebody's win is somebody else's loss versus one that's encouraging us to think in terms that you can get what you want and I can get what I want and it's not necessarily in uh, that match in this fashion. I always use the example of par- uh, like having kids and being a parent because to me, like one thing that I always, the way I've been raising my daughter is always been a discussion where <clears throat> I don't want anything different from, like I want you to be happy 
and I want you to be safe. That's all I want. I don't, I don't have any agenda that I want to impose on you or a particular course of action. So since you want to be happy and you want to be safe, let's strategize. You know, we may disagree maybe on a strategy on what we think leads to happiness and safety, but because we have the same goal and essentially we are allies in this, we are accomplices in this game, we are just going to try to bounce ideas off each other and help each other to lead to the goal that we both ultimately want. You know, and I think in many cases, you know, somebody I remember used to an example to kind of counter the whole, uh, well, there's a nuance there saying, um, and their example made sense, but unfortunately I think they missed the point. They said, well, you know, if I'm going to find somebody who doesn't want genocide and somebody who wants genocide, the solution is not to do a half genocide. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, fair enough. We, we agree on that. That's fair. But I think it's because you are looking at it you're not looking what's behind it. Uh-huh. It's like, look at something as horrific as genocide. Why are, do these people just walk up and say, I just want to kill everybody with that skin color? I understand that you don't want to get into the mindset of somebody who went that far, because that's a really ugly mindset. But usually, if you backtrack about 45 steps before they got to that conclusion, there was some legitimate need that wasn't met. There was a fear of, oh, our economy is scrambling and it's the immigrants that are coming in and taking our jobs. And it's like, no, that's not the problem. But yes, I understand that you are, for good reasons, concerned about the economy. So really when you boil it down is what you're worried about is safety, is the security and well-being of your family. We can agree about that. That there's no disagreement there. Let's just look at the next. And, you know, you have to dial it back. 30 steps behind the conclusion, which of course you can compromise on that conclusion, but like figuring out what led there and try to divert the process so that you can get what you are originally worried about without having to go that extremely unhealthy one. See, that's such a beautiful way of saying it, Daniela. I mean, we have to find places where we say, we do both want a better world. Right. Right. We, I mean, I don't go to whatever place it is to say, we're going to debate the how. But we need to debate the how, like how do yeah, we get there? But of course. let's both agree, because that's where I, you know, my my antennas or whatever go up when someone says, well, they just hate women or they, you know, or they don't want the, <laughs> right. they want the U.S. to, you know, fail. And I'm like, yeah. no, they don't. Right. But the terrifying thing is we talk. That's easy to say. I want my, ha- I want my children to be happy and safe. And safe. Yep. But we let schools get shot apart on a monthly basis. You would think that would be priority one for everybody in the country, but we can find other things to hide behind. Oh, they're going to take my machine guns to wreck it all. So even that, you know, we we often joke that you could find somebody that is anti-oxygen. I know everybody likes that oxygen, but I don't believe I care for any of that. Well, and, and I think, uh, just, and I think- that's just it's insane. We won't protect our own kids so that somebody can go home and hug their gun well and i think These so terrible that's places. where you need to go like then okay let's go the 10 steps behind uh-huh. uh the, like the because clearly steps. nobody's like yeah i want kids to die that's what i'm for so if uh, your obsession is about my guns okay why what are the things that lead to make you feel that way that is about 
and try to satisfy what those needs are without turning everybody need to have the right to buy their own atomic bomb at the store because that's the only way that I'm going to feel safe. Which I don't know if you heard, Costco yeah. is offering small tactical <laughs> nukes starting right. this Christmas. So this will all be fixed very shortly. Yes. but And I think that's where, what it is, right? Because it's, once you get to that point of that discussion about if the discussion is about the gun, you're not going to get anywhere. So the discussion would have to be like 30 steps before of figuring out what is that that represents to you, what is that you are looking for into feeling that this is the right, and figure out how that can be satisfied without leading to this batshit crazy place. Because that, of course, there is no compromise by the time you get to that point. It's very difficult. It is, of course. These are incredibly difficult issues. But I think the point is, actually, we need to make the focus on polarization. We need to make the focus on, right, rather than even the topic, we have to, I think, personally, maybe it's just the space I'm in, I'm hearing so much angst over, we can't live like this, mm -hmm. meaning in the, in the tug of war. Yeah. So, okay, then let's make that the focus, because if we could start working on not being polarized, that would give us a new space from which to start addressing these very, very real issues. So your job is going to be uh, to be the becoming the ambassador of nuance. How uh, to uh, <laughs> that you can put that on your business card. <laughs> it's going to be my identity, Danielle. Right, exactly. And and that's what I love about it, by the way, because to me is uh, if when you really truly embrace it. It doesn't mean that is ultra nuanced every time. Uh -uh, you know, no. to me, one thing that I say as a joke, but not really, is that, you know, on one end, I believe that I don't believe in absolute in terms of absolute rules. And so I'm like, no, there are no absolute rules except when they are needed, you know, because there are the few rare cases where, yeah, that is a black and white and there's nothing Absolutely. in between and it's fine. And that's sometime being nuanced doesn't mean you're always at the 50% line. No. Sometimes you can be 99 and one, and that is the correct call because that's what the situation calls for. Right. I appreciate you saying that because people think that, you know, both and or yin yang means an equal balance. Yeah. And that, that's not at all what it means. Yeah, that's missing the point. That's like yeah. thinking it's a wishy-washy, mm -hmm. you can make up your mind, you can take a strong stance. And it's like, no, sometimes it is, you know, exactly. About genocide, yeah, we are not meeting in the middle there. You know, that's a pretty clear-cut <laughs> point. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's important to have this discussion. That's why I appreciate what you're doing with your work. I think it's important to have this discussion in as many ways possible from a very pragmatic, strategy-driven, business-oriented discussion to people who do it more philosophically, to people who do it more through art, through uh, and all of that. So I love that. Well, thank you so much for uh, your work, for chatting with us, because uh, again, you know, you get me going on these. I'm like, ah, I feel home. This is oh, what's... me too. Me too. I thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I feel I, energized. I look uh, the other day. I <laughs> dug up uh, an old book I'd written, and I realized that the last chapter of the book i'm gonna send it to you afterwards you. there's uh, the last chapter is called toward the paradox flavor consciousness so that's why i was like oh my god we're <laughs> we're no, on the same line way. right there yeah so well thank you again so much this is fantastic well thank you for all you do really appreciate your podcast thank you did you have fun oh my gosh i had a ball excellent sweet
The Funky Music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Towers podcast. I, uh, she's just fantastic, and I did really enjoy the notions that she's spewing out there for us. Yep. Because um, there's a lot to be said for that sort of thinking. Yep, yep, yep. Solution-oriented um, thinking. I love it because it's so much of uh, this kind of discussion happen among... Uh, happening environment that like the environment that she's dealing with between academia and high level business they are no nonsense kind of like they want to see results yep. so the fact that something that i strongly believe in as something valuable to people get to be seen as valuable in the environment that she interacts with pleases me to no end and i'm glad to hear somebody who's articulating with a different language explaining it in a different way using different examples from what i would or somebody else would and is making this kind of thinking a bit more popular in environments where maybe it wasn't before. And maybe it's a necessity as well at this mm-hmm. point that this sort of just no focus other than squeeze everybody hard as they can. Maybe even those folks that that is their one mission have reached a point where they see that maybe we just can't do it this way much longer. And I think ultimately what the beautiful thing about this type of thinking that she's espousing is the fact that everyone walks away getting what they want out of it. And so it's not a one group against another. Their needs is about essentially fulfilling the needs of everybody involved in the conversation, which is if you can pull that off, that's always the highest possible level of success. What do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielli at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! All right, let's go to rehearsal. We're rolling this one. Oh, no.